Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Adam Bertram. Based in Evansville, Indiana, Adam is a blogger and trainer and writer and entrepreneur with over 20 years of IT experience in various areas. He's also he's also founder of TechSnips, an IT career development platform. You can follow him on Twitter at Adam at AD Bertram and check out his website at AdamTheAutomator.com, as well as the Twitter account for TechSnips at, at TechSnips underscore IO. Adam is the author of two LeanPub books, The Pester Book, Learn All About Pester, The Testing Framework for PowerShell, and Teach Me, How to Write How-To Technical Articles That Make Money. In this interview, we're going to talk about Adam's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a writer and particularly uh, using LeanPub to self-publish a couple of books. So thank you, Adam, for taking the time to be on the Front Matter podcast. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and technology. Sure. Yeah, I've grown up in uh, southern Indiana in the, in the U.S. for well, what, what am I? I'm almost forty now, so it's been a it's been a long time. Um, and I started out with in computers. Really, I mean, ever since I could essentially sit upright, um, I my mom has pictures of me. It's uh, six years old of playing on the computer, and by the time I was you know, eight or nine years old, I was writing Windows batch files. So I was, I've always been a geek for my entire life. And fortunately, it's uh, uh, something that I know I've known that I wanted to get into for, you know, ever since I was ever since I was a little kid. So luckily, I have uh, grown up with computers since, uh, you know, and I've been in IT for 21 years now, something like that. And, uh, you know, ever since then, uh, just been a been a wild ride. I have, have had lots of jobs, lots of uh, great opportunities here and there. And uh, just, you know, just taking advantage of every minute of it. Uh, one thing I noted from your LinkedIn profile when I was researching for this interview is that you studied computer science at university. And one of the questions that often comes up on this podcast, it's so many of our, our guests are people in software, is if you were starting out a career now, as opposed to 20 years ago, would you spend four years studying formally computer science at university, or would you choose a different path into a career in IT? Um, looking back, I, I think that the the piece of paper is probably important. It depends on what kind of personality you have. Um, I, I think that somebody that has a, the kind of personality, the, the more risk um, risk averse. Um, you know, just wants to get the, uh, you know, the full-time job, um, wants to get a good job, um, and um, uh, just kind of wants to take the, uh, I don't want to say the easy path, but the, uh, um, I don't know, the, the less risky path. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. I, and and if that you're that kind of person, I think a four-year degree um, is definitely uh, uh, doable. Um, I think it's a, a good idea because you have that piece of paper, you can get a lot of jobs. But um, if you're more of the uh, hustler, entrepreneur type, um, and you just want to, you're, you're more, uh, more up to risk. You're, you're okay with kind of going on your own freelancing, um, you know, participating in the gig economy. Um, that, and that reason, I think you're going to be a little bit more scrappy. You're going to figure out how to get things done, not necessarily the conventional way. I think in that instance, College may still be a good idea, but um, you know, honestly, um, I pretty much just wasted my time in college. And, and nowadays, um, I'm not using anything that I learned in college. If you ask me, everything that I've learned is through uh, kind of the school of hard knocks. Uh, and somewhat on that note, you've got TechSnips, which you founded. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So um, as of, let's say, two years ago or something, I decided to go um, self-employed, go on my own. Um, I'd quit a nice job. I live in southern Indiana, and I had a, a, a very high-paying job for living in southern Indiana um, near San Francisco in Redwood City um, in California. So I quit uh, that high-paying job, decided to go out on my own um, because I had a nice nest egg saved up, so I started TechSnips. I started TechSnips. Um, actually, TechSnips is a... Uh, uh, a small startup that um, brings in people from the community, IT professionals, software developers, anybody that traditionally has, um, you know, uh, you know, in your nine to five job that knows a lot, that has a lot of knowledge in their head, but they just don't, they just haven't been able to to show to share that knowledge either through um, you know writing and or videos or anything like that. So I just started to. Uh, to build a platform, a video platform for um, these kind of people to bring them in, kind of hone their skills, train them and uh, train them in uh, not necessarily 
just um, get themselves out there. There's a lot of them that had an imposter syndrome, just getting them, them the courage to, to really get involved um, and uh, show how to transfer the knowledge in their head to the, the, uh, to something that's to communicate with others in the masses. And I've been kind of preaching this for a long time in my um, uh, position in the, in the community is that I really think that a lot of people um, like myself, um, you know, IT professionals, software developers, we're kind of, we're always kind of stuck in our own little world. And it's really um, easy to get stuck in that world and just stay in there without getting out and, you know, writing and doing videos and how to things and books and eBooks, that sort of thing. Um, and that's kind of, that's pretty much what tech tips is about just in video form. I have some questions to ask you about uh, imposter syndrome and sort of getting over your own humility, which is a strange kind of paradox uh, mm -hmm. later on when we talk about your, your teach me how to write how to articles book. But before we get into there, uh, how did you get into writing yourself? Did you, were you always writing or was that something that came late? Uh, I started before I started in this kind of um, part of my life, I guess you can say this part of my life is, is uh, where I started blogging about technology things, um, PowerShell, uh, the scripting language, um, you know, cloud, Azure, AWS, just kind of getting in this technology space. Before then, I started a blog on, uh, and ironically, it's just selling used books online. So I, I had a business selling used books. And at that time, for sure, for some reason, I've always had that kind of desire to whenever I do something, I immediately write about it or share something about of what I'm learning. And I started writing, um, blogging back then. That was probably 10, 12 years ago, something like that. So I had a blog um, about how to sell used books on Amazon, on eBay, how to build a business, how to find books. Um, and that's how I started the blog. At that time, I had written um, some eBooks and I've kind of kind of brought that um, brought that that knowledge and things that I've learned from there over to now the technology space where I'm, I'm writing about, you know, kind of what I'm doing now, the, you know, the cloud space, um, it things, tech things. Um, so that's kind of where I started from there. I did, I started blogging, um, at Adam, the And then, um, uh, since then there has been a lot of times to where people have asked me, well, can you go into more depth on this topic? Can you go into more depth on this one? And a blog, um, really isn't a great platform for that. So that's when I started writing um, ebooks on LeanPub. And that's where the first two that I came from uh, that I have now. And I typically now just whenever I see that there's some interest, if I have the interest to do it and I see other people that have the interest to do it that needs more longer form content, I will typically try to uh, um, to start an ebook uh, and, and hopefully <laughs> finish an ebook. And so you got started in blogging before you started writing ebooks. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I was I was actually quite curious uh, when I when I realized that you'd um, written a blog about having to sell used books online. Where I'm based in Victoria, British Columbia, is actually the same place where A Books is based. So it's just this kind. Oh of yeah. Curious yeah, I'm well aware of A Books. Yep. Yeah. 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 And so, in addition to the blogging and the ebook, you're also a plural site course creator. Mm -hmm. uh, I've interviewed a couple of people who are plural site plural site course creators before for this podcast. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience with that. So for a lot of people on the outside, they might one one day want to be a well-known blogger and they might, might want to be writing how-to books and building an audience. And then they might want to someday be approached by a company like Pluralsight to create content for them. Did Pluralsight approach you or did, and, and, and one of the things I like to do in this podcast is actually get to the details of like how it happened. Because a lot mm -hmm. of times it can seem like, you know, the old joke with Quentin Tarantino is, you know, I'm working in the video store and now I'm a, I'm a famous director. Yeah. Yeah, but how, what, what exactly yeah. happened, you know? And so, so, uh, to a lot of people who are on the outside looking in, did, did plural site approach you or did you approach them? Um, plural, I approached plural site from the, uh, the referral from another plural site author. Um, I, cr I authored my first course five years ago. Um, something like that. Um, so at the time I had known, I, I had been blogging for a while and been on Twitter and active in the community. And I noticed that um, you know, a lot of people that I looked up to were plural site authors. They had done these training courses and I'd never done, uh, a course before actually a plural site course. I had done a Udemy one. So I got my, 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 uh, training wheels, I guess, in Udemy. So I started that, did a bunch of, uh, recording in my closet just to, because that was the only place that could actually, uh, have decent sound. So I did that, uh, well on my own. I learned a lot, um, just kind of practicing in Udemy and getting a PowerShell course out from Udemy. 
Um, and since then, um, I noticed there was a lot of people on Pluralsight. So I reached out to uh, um, a mentor of mine, and he had already done a few Pluralsight courses. And I asked, well, what is it like to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to do a Pluralsight course? Um, and he said, well, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. It's very rewarding, man, the pace pretty good. So I'm like, sure, I'll try it. So I, uh, I signed up um, and I applied and they, they went through a, a fairly rigorous um, review process to where I had to uh, send in a couple um, revisions of auditions. Um, so with Pluralsight, when you audition, they, they make you kind of do a little mini course, five or 10 minutes of breaking down a specific problem um, and showing and, and trying to, to teach you, okay, this is how we uh, approach things at Pluralsight. So I had applied for them, did a few different audition revisions. And uh, um, since then I've done, I just finished my sixth or seventh course, I think. And do they commission, once you've, once you've passed the audition, do they commission you to do something that they've kind of done research on and they know there's an audience out there for that? Or do they apply you for ideas? A little bit of both. Um, at, in the old days, um, they've gotten fairly, I mean, very big nowadays um, since going public. So when I started, they were a fairly small company. And that was, it was more of a, well, what do you want to do? And I would pitch something and they go, oh, sure. That was how it was uh, five or six years ago. Uh, but now it's kind of a combination of both. They have a, uh, a fairly, uh, really lengthy course curriculum um, agenda that they wanted to uh, to fulfill. And they'll occasionally reach out to me knowing that I have specific expertise and, and specific areas that I like to do plural site courses in. And they'll reach out to me. Um, and if I'd like to do one, I can start one. Or I can just pitch them an idea or a topic that I would like at any time. And, um, you know, they'll say, well, no, we're not looking for that or we're looking for that. They'll kind of negotiate and work with me there. And uh, you've mentioned already that just getting getting more into your own story, a, a couple of years ago, you sort of went off on your own. What what led you to make that decision? Um, well, I've always been um, an entrepreneur at heart. Um, I have uh, have always been very independent. Um, I've always had a side hustle. I don't think it's been a very, very long time since I've actually just had a full-time job. Um, you know, my brain is going 100 miles an hour all the time, and I always I – always, thirst for more knowledge, learning more, doing more. Um, and honestly, 40 hours a week just doesn't do it for me. So I've always kind of had to, to get my fix on other things. So I've had a side hustle for, I don't know, maybe 15 years or something like that. Um, so I've always kind of had that entrepreneurial streak, but I never really had the, um, um, the, the courage um, to actually go out on my own until um, a couple of years ago uh, when I was able to, uh, to save up a sizable uh, nest egg uh, for myself and my family. And my, my wife, thankfully, decided to uh, say, OK, well, I don't like it, but uh, OK, let's just give it a shot. So I, uh, you know, I gave it a shot. Uh, that was two years ago. And uh, ever since then, um, you know, I've been, kind of been on my own doing uh, more Pluralsight courses, um, doing some freelance writing, blogging, um, uh, writing uh, ebooks on LeanPub and just uh, essentially just kind of doing the uh, doing my freelance thing and, and just uh, getting by that way. And I understand from your uh, Twitter feed and from your blog that you're currently looking for a remote work position for the for the sort of mm -hmm. next next stage of what you're doing. Uh, and mm -hmm. it, I, it was actually really interesting reviewing your your experience. I mean, it, I say this sort of cavalierly from my perspective. In, interesting, but like uh, it, you've had this really curious experience where you're you're looking for remote work, something that is sort of more and more popular, and and something that companies. I, I mean, I think I'm in agreement with you. Ought to find attractive as a as a way of recruiting talented people. But often, uh, it's not clear when you're applying and applications for jobs can be rigorous and time consuming. It's not clear when you're applying whether there's a remote position involved. Often people will say things like, oh, well, you can go remote eventually, but you can't for the first couple of years. And I was just wondering if you could share some of your, your thoughts about, about that experience. Yeah. So there is a few um, topics that for whatever reason, I'm, I get really passionate about um, the, the whole, you mentioned the imposter syndrome, having the confidence that's one, um, the PowerShell scripting language is another. And for some reason, I have just gotten really passionate and interested in about the concept of remote work or um, you know, working from home. And I have, I've been writing about that here and there um, for the, for a long time and really getting more um, doing a lot of career focused um, advice and writing um, and that sort of thing. And uh, this is the first time I've decided um, that you know, I want to be, I, I would like to be part of a team um, 
and I would like to, it feels a little lonely on your own being a freelancer. You don't really get the opportunity to work with a lot of people. And, um, so I decided to get to, to go uh, uh, look for a full-time remote job. And I found through that, um, it's probably been three or four weeks now of just um, reaching out to my network um, you know, on Twitter, um, saying I, I'm looking for a job, trying to find any leads that I can, and also doing um, going through the, the job application process. And it just always really, really frustrates me to know that um, there was, for example, there was one job, um, I tweeted about a few days ago, I believe, and it was the perfect job. I mean, exactly what I wanted to do. It sounded like a great company. Um, and it, 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 it sounded perfect. And I, um, you know, me being my, my, uh, my skill is around PowerShell and automation. I'm like, this is, this is me. I, I can do this with, in my, with my eyes closed and it sounds like a great opportunity. So I, I reached out. It didn't say anything about remote. Uh, that's one thing that, like you said, a lot of companies do. They will offer a position, but um, it will say nothing about remote. Sometimes they will you, you reach out, and for the right candidate, they will say, uh, well, okay, I guess we'll let you. But the majority of the time, they will just say, no, it's not remote. You have to be on site. You have to have your butt in the seat so we can see you. <laughs> so um, I hate that, but um, that's kind of how this one was, and it really frustrated me because – I, I mean, I personally thought that, you know, I have 10, 15 years of experience. You are, this is exactly the kind of position I can do and I can bring a lot of value to the company. And just for the sheer fact of, you know, I'm remote, even though I was remote for, you know, I've been working remotely for eight years now, something like that. So plenty of, plenty of experience. I know exactly what I'm getting into, but um, that company and the ma huge majority of the other companies, um, even um, even I've talked to people at Amazon and Microsoft and big tech companies that they just like, no, nope, not even going to consider remote. It just uh, it frustrates me to, to no end to know that the talent it's I know that it's not relegated to just me. I know that if I'm having this problem, um, being public in the in the community and even my my work is public. I mean, I can't even imagine all the other people that you know are looking for jobs out there that send in their resume that, that may be perfect for the job, but they don't get the opportunity to to prove themselves just simply because they have to be in a physical location. So thank you for sharing that. I, I have a passion for this subject as well. Um, I also personally hate being subjected to the butts in seats model. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's it's in, it's in, it's an interesting. Saying interesting again, it's interesting in a lot of different ways. Partly because I would say most people just take it for granted that being seen and managed that way, and like going to work at nine and leaving at five or six or whatever it is, is just the way work works. What is it that you hate about that? It's a different. Um, I agree. It's it's a different paradigm. Um, I was talking. Somebody had disagreed with me on Twitter um, with via DM. Wait, um, someone disagreed uh, with you on Twitter? Some, someone disagreed with me. Yeah, <laughs> believe it or not. Thankfully, he was very nice about it. I don't try to get too you know political and you know too controversial. But uh, there's sometimes whenever you know I really believe in something I have a passion about. Um, you know, you always get people that will disagree. I mean, he's very cordial, and basically what he was saying was. He kind of had a different mindset, a kind of different mentality. He's like, "Well, this is how this is how work works. Like, this goes back to this is how it's always been done. When somebody tells me this is how it's always been done, that's like nails on the chalkboard for me. You know, I I I really subscribe to the the new school mentality of you leverage, especially with technology you have now. I'm talking to you on Skype. I can see you in the video." Um, and it's all about we don't I, I really I really have a strong passion for trying to evangelize not only remote work. I think remote work is a symptom of my um, my desire to really get out and tell people, tell companies and tell employers and other people of don't just do something just because you do it. Question everything all the time, you know, just like the whole Apple thing. Think different. I really like that commercial, the, the, the crazy ones um, for Apple that Steve Jobs did, um, because I really think that I think if we if us in technology can can come together and realize and bring all these old stodgy companies out of, OK, that's how it's been done for a long time. We have that culture because we've never we never had the technology to really leverage that. People say that, um, uh, well, 
it's good that we can be together. Well, I mean, I'm talking to you. I can see you just like I can see you in real life. Um, I can see your facial gestures, your body language. I can talk with you just fine. Um, I think it's just more of a companies are very uncomfortable with that. And that's one thing that I don't believe in because when somebody says, well, I'm not comfortable doing that. I will always question, why are you uncomfortable doing that? And if you give me good reason, sure, I'll go along with it. Okay, yeah, that's legit. But if you tell me, I just don't want to do that just because it's always been done this way or, or oh, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to go through um, you know, figuring out a new way to do things. Um, I think that's the remote work thing I think is a symptom of my mentality of like, no, this is – we need to to come to the 21st century now. We can we have the technology. Let's use it instead of just doing it the old way we used to. Yeah, thanks thanks for that really great answer. Uh, it's um it is really interesting how people you know can be operating at a high level of responsibility with a lot at stake and yet rely on crutches like that's the way it's always been or you know we just can't mm-hmm. we just can't rethink this part of this really major part of how we do things and how when you've been on the other side of it say working remotely for a few years you realize just how you can just do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's got. I think it's. The, the remote work thing um, or the, you know, the air quoted working from home thing of, you know, wink, wink, we're working, working, you know, air quote, working from home. I, I think it's got a bad connotation to some degree, because if you if you take someone that doesn't doesn't like their job, they're going to wink, wink, work from home when everybody says, well, they're just going to do errands or laundry or something. They're essentially just taking day off when they say we're working from home. I think that there's a lot of challenges that we need to overcome from a culture perspective, because traditionally it just depends on the type of employee. I think a lot of employers think, well, you're working from home. I can't see you. So I don't trust you. A lot of employees don't, or employers don't trust their employees to do it. But I think that that's a part of a, a screening problem where if you have people that are allowed to come in, not really care what they do, not really are passionate and really want to be there and solve whatever problems they have to solve. If they work from home, sure, they're probably not going to do anything. But I think that's just a matter of setting the appropriate goals, doing some uh, better um, screening for new employees. And I think it's just a kind of a different mentality. It's a, it's a major shift in the way companies operate. It's funny. It's funny you, you frame it that way because I see uh, a sort of like in square quotes working from the office with the same kind yeah. of skepticism. It's like some people will waste three hours a day commuting, you know, both ways with all the stress about being on time and making your connection and being late. So there's three hours of your day gone just in transit. And then, you know, I mean, a lot of offices, you know, people roll in on time, but, you know, the first half hour is like coffee and then the next half hour is chatting and then the next half hour is maybe some email and then it's a little bit of a break and you know then it's time for lunch and you know and and by the way meetings 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 and and i think you've actually written about how uh, i mean it's it's sort of a joke but it's sort of true that like being busy is actually a way of being lazy just having mm-hmm. lots of lots of tasks to do and meetings to go to and things that are arranged for you is actually a way of not working in many cases mm-hmm. and i think this is like i'm fully on the remote work sort of version of that where it's like by the time you've spent an hour and a half on the train to your office i've done an hour and a half's worth of work mm-hmm. you know, from from home who cares where the work gets done why build this you know huge apparatus around just getting your work done and i think i think yeah, it's, it's expensive for the employers too i mean they have to bring up they have to you know have an office they have to have facilities i mean the expenses are absorbent when they don't really need to be mm-hmm 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 Speaking of, of working, uh, one thing uh, that you, you, you write you write a lot about your, your job search or recently about your job search and about remote work and things that you're passionate about. And you've also uh, written about something else that's very personal, which is uh, ADHD. Uh, and um, you had a blog post from not too long ago from June called ADHD, what it's like having it and what to do about it. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind taking the opportunity to talk a little bit about what ADHD is. I mean, I'm sure everyone's heard about it, but talking a little bit about what it is and what it's like having it and what to do about it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was diagnosed um, uh, fairly late in life. I was diagnosed uh, when I was 21, something like that, um, uh, when I was uh, in college. Um, because I had kind of struggled through elementary school and middle school and high school. Um, but I, it really, I just kind of got along with it. My parents, 
my parents were, uh, you know, rural parents. We live in a rural neighborhood and it's normally just, oh, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, just work harder. Um, you know, you're being lazy, just get over it um, and uh, do it. So I, I kind of believed them for a very long time when I finally had the courage to go to the doctor and say, um, you know, I, it's, I've lived with this for my entire life. Um, you know, I, I, I can't sit still. I can't pay attention. Right now, they, my my meds are wearing off, and I can feel I can see my my foot just naturally shakes, uh, just because my my mind is going 100 miles an hour all the time. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why I've had side hustles for so long because I'm so you know on. I constantly want to do more. Um, so yeah, probably 20 years ago, I was uh, diagnosed, and um, I've been through a few different uh, CBT therapies, so cognitive behavioral therapies, to where um, you know the therapist would sit you down and um, tell you to ha- have you notice the triggers and try to, to uh, focus your your mind more. Um, that helped, and I've learned a lot on my own over the years of how to control it and how to kind of force my brain back to where it needs to be. Um, but I've been on um, medication for, well, yeah, about the whole time um, as well. So I've been on many different uh, medications, both uh, stimulant and non-stimulant, and uh, essentially it's something that um, it, it's helped me tremendously um, throughout the years just to uh, to really get work done. And, um, I think that I honestly, I think that, uh, this isn't a, a, a promote promotion for, for my events by any means, but, um, that medication alone, um, I, I got had to give the, the, um, uh, disclaimer, always see your doctor, but, um, yeah, the medication I think is almost, it was almost a lifesaver for me because I knew what I was like beforehand and I know what I'm like now, and I would never be in the position that I am now, uh, with the help that I received and the medication that, that, uh, I have been on for so long. Yeah. I wanted to say thank you for being so open for talking about it on this podcast and, and on your blog and elsewhere. Generally, uh, a lot of people, uh, don't, don't do that. Even, oh yeah. Mental uh, health. Even though we, many people live with it. Yeah. Mental health is very important. I'm very open about, uh, ADHD, um, and my anxiety and depression that, uh, that I go through every time. I think more people need to have the courage to, uh, to uh, to speak openly about it. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with uh, mental health. Mental health should be defined the same way as physical health. But unfortunately, in our society, um, you know, it's kind of like my parents were. Well, I don't see anything wrong with you, so oh, just stop doing that. You know, just stop thinking that way. You know, <laughs> anybody with a, a mental health issue knows that. Well, you can't just you can't stop. So uh, yeah, that's another thing that. Uh, I've written occasionally about his mental health, panic disorder, um, depression, and that sort of thing. Yeah, you had you had a you had a great line uh, or two in a in a post um, called "Living with Adult ADHD and Kicking Ass" in brackets, uh, where you say you said something that I mean I, I I haven't been diagnosed with ADHD or anything like that, but you you write some things that really resonated with me, like quote There are days when you feel no pleasure whatsoever after a long day. You feel guilty because you can't feel a sense of accomplishment. You look back on a day's work and realize you didn't think you didn't check a thing off your to-do list. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, I think that's something that people very rarely write about so straightforwardly. But to just write about it that way is just really nice to see, you know, that there's no you don't when you write about it, you don't build up a huge edifice around it. It's just you're just articulating the things that actually all, all of us feel from time to mm-hmm. time or, or more often than that even. Um mm-hmm. And, uh, and I would say one thing is that in particular, working from home sort of, and this, this, we've sort of touched on this a little bit, but working from home slash remote work really strips away a lot of the excuses you can have for pretending that you've had a productive day when you, yep. when you haven't, you know, you're just there with yourself and, you know, you like, you know, for example, like even like, as I was mentioning, like terrible commutes can actually feel like, oh, I'm, I'm a really hardworking person. And it's like, well, you, you sure did commute, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, sure feel it, it genuinely feels that way. And that took a lot of effort and time and expense, yep. but was it work though? Yeah. It's all about the output. It's not how much you put in. It's about how much you put out. It goes back. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of that one, um, of the, um, oh, that one saying of that story where, uh, the repair guy came in, um, looked around at some kind of device camera, what it was and got out a hammer and hit one spot on it. And a few a few days later, the uh, the person that was wanting to fix got a got a bill for ten thousand dollars. And they said, oh, "Why are you paying me ten thousand dollars?" Well, it wasn't 
it what I didn't pay you 10,000 or I didn't want $10,000 for the time. I wanted $10,000 for the 10 years or something that I spent to know exactly what point to hit on there. So it's all about the output, the value that you provide, not the time that you put in. That's why I don't, I don't like getting, you know, uh, paid by the hour. I normally try to get paid by the project because if I can provide you with this much value, that should be all you care about. How much is this outcome worth to you? Not if I put in, I will put in five minutes or I'll put in 40 hours or whatever it takes. I can deliver this package to you. And ultimately, um, you know, that's all, um, that's all that you actually care about is just the output, not the, you know, constant, the commuting or the checking the email constantly, um, you know, like the, uh, the rabbit in the cage of that constantly hitting the button to send, receive, send, receive the emails. It's not about, you know, exactly what you're doing. I think you're being lazy because it's a lot easier to get that quick dopamine hit, uh, than, Oh, I got a new email. Oh, ding, ding. You know, the Twitter, Twitter's coming up or Facebook. Um, you know, it's, it's nice to get that quick dopamine hit, but it takes discipline and a lot more, you know, cognitive, beha- uh, cognitive, uh, thought actually to just figure out, Let's not do this. Now let's go try to do more, you know, Cal Newport style deep work um, and really get things done. That way you can have output at the end rather than just feeling like you haven't done anything. Yeah, I've got, I've actually got some specific questions about that kind of piecework, which you've, which you've done uh, where, you know, you've, you're delivering pieces of writing and you don't, you're not getting paid by the, by the hour for that. You're getting paid for the piece. Uh, and we'll talk about mm-hmm. that when we talk about your second Lean Pub book, but just sort of moving, moving more in that direction now. So you write at adamtheautomator.com on your site and you have a, you have a company by that name as well. And I was wondering, so this is kind of a funny way into it, but a lot of people, when they hear about automation, they're thinking about like robots taking over our jobs. What's the kind of automator? automating that you that you engage in yep so there's two kind of two types of automation hardware automation and software automation i am in the software automation space place because i have never um you know i firmly believe in automation in general but uh, yeah the the i would say the majority of you know society thinks of robot automations and factories and um you know taking people's jobs um i'm more software automation to where that means of writing software, writing scripts to just uh, make processes more efficient, figure out, uh, uh, discover patterns in various um, software workflows, um, software deployments, um, um, you know, really anything in the IT and technology space that software can do can make things better. And essentially, it's automation, essentially, if you want to boil it down, discovering patterns that are repeated over and over and over again, and then and writing software or a script or some kind of routine or workflow to then make that process more efficient, error-free, removes humans out of the mix. So it's you know error-free. It's, uh, computers don't lie to you. They don't change their behavior. So it's standardized, um, error, um, error-free, and also much faster because the computer can do things uh, much faster than any of us humans can. And just to sort of zero in on the kind of thing we're talking about, can you explain a little bit about what, what PowerShell is and then what Pester is within it? Just going in onto the next part of the interview where we talk about your first book, uh, the Pester book. Sure. Um, yeah, PowerShell is a uh, scripting language. And if, if your, the audience is not familiar with a scripting language, it's essentially um, like a um, some code. It's software code that's executed via that doesn't have to be compiled. So um, let's say that, you know, you want to um, a trigger of when a file goes into a, a folder, you want to trigger something else or when a, uh, a service gets stopped or when you stick in a, um, a thumb drive or something, there's a trigger and then there's multiple actions that follow that trigger. Um, PowerShell is a scripting language that allows you to uh, define the trigger. Either your trigger is going to be uh, manually, so when you execute um, a script, it's going to do whatever you need it to do, or you can define um, triggers that way with PowerShell. And PowerShell um, essentially is a scripting language that was built by Microsoft um, that's now cross-platform, so it's available on Windows, Linux, Mac OS, um, all uh, all the operating systems out there. And it uh, essentially allows you to automate. It's it's not necessarily. It's kind of the a hybrid between a system, a sysadmin, automation language, console, 
in a shell a shell console and a development language. It depends on who you ask is how it's going to how it would be uh, uh, defined. But I think the general consensus is it's essentially a automation language that allows you to write scripts and write code to you know automate all the things. Oh, and Pester. Um, you what you talked about Pester. So um, Pester, like um, any good language out there, um, has PowerShell has a testing framework, and the testing framework that the community and the Microsoft has adopted is called Pester. Um, so if uh, you're seeing software developers listen to this, they probably know about unit testing, integration testing, acceptance testing, that sort of thing. And Pester is exactly what that is in the PowerShell world. Um, Pester was actually written in PowerShell, and it is a, a group of modules and different functions and commands with uh, built for unit testing purposes. So essentially, uh, Pester, the Pester framework was built um, on PowerShell to do uh, PowerShell unit testing. Uh, and since then, it's been, since it is just PowerShell, and PowerShell is known to be a very flexible language, um, it's been used to do more integration testing. So um, uh, and acceptance and even infrastructure testing. So whenever we talk about the concept of infrastructure as code to where we um, check in a, a piece of code in Git or, and then it goes up to GitHub and then a webhook sends it off and uh, builds, uh, runs some kind of script to build some kind of uh, test environment or whatever infrastructure that the, uh, uh, that the developer needs. Pester is a way to verify that not only the code is written right, but what the code actually did against the infrastructure was correct too through, um, it's informally called infrastructure testing. I don't know if there's actually a good um, term for it. So Pester is kind of the framework around the PowerShell language to do a lot of, uh, um, of unit testing and also the infrastructure testing as well. So if I understand this correctly, the way it works is that there's um, this concept of unit testing. So I've got like a kind of chunk of code that I can do, a, that's a unit that I can test. And then eventually that unit is going to be integrated into some existing piece of infrastructure. And so Pester helps you do that testing of how it would work if it were actually deployed into that infrastructure? Yeah, actually, because... PowerShell is not necessarily a development language. Normally, whenever uh, a software developer talks about testing, it's always probably going to be unit testing because they, they, they write code. They just test what the code does, not um, the actual application. When you're talking about in the more of the DevOps world um, and the sysadmin infrastructure side of things, that's when Pester comes in to where it will not only unit test the code, which doesn't change, it doesn't change anything in the infrastructure it doesn't even run on the infrastructure but it will also it's also able to check um when the code runs pester can actually run the scope run the powershell code check the code make sure it looks good if it does or if it doesn't then execute that script or the, that code which then will go out and, and build a virtual machine um, set up a container or do whatever it needs to do and then after it does that, it will wait and then test again. Did it actually create that file? Did it create the server with the right name? Did it provision you know, this and this and this? Did it actually do all those things? And depending on how crazy you want to get with automation, um, there's many different uh, ways out there that will not only bring up all of that infrastructure, do the test, and then tear it all down. Um, that's when you kind of get into the continuous integration, continuous uh, deployment uh, pipeline paradigm thing. And am I right that became a convert to test-driven development at a certain point after not, not really necessarily believing it to begin with? Um, mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So that, now that you've confirmed that, can you explain a little bit about your journey towards that and what test-driven development is? I've interviewed a couple of people about that and people get very worked up. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't say that I'm a necessarily a, a convert. Um, I, whenever I started um, with Pester and the te in just testing in general, I was, um, I kind of did cowboy coding where it was essentially just we write whatever you needed to write, um, let it go. If it doesn't throw an error or if anything doesn't blow up, it's fine. Just keep going because we needed to go fast. Uh, it wasn't until um, I was able to start writing pester tests, um, tests about my, with my uh, infrastructure code that I started to truly, um, truly trust the code more. So whenever you're working at the previous job I had, we were working with, I don't know, it was a few, uh, it was almost 100,000 lines of just PowerShell code that did all, anything infrastructure automation-wise. 
And what would happen is just like with any piece of software, we would make one tweak um, and then didn't throw an error. We would test that individual piece, that individual function, didn't throw an error. Um, okay, it looked looked fine. But what we didn't realize was, well, we didn't actually run all the other pieces that were dependent on it that we had forgotten that we had written a year ago. Um, so with Pester, I was that we were able to um, to really trust the code more, um, develop much more um, dependable code because every time we would um, check in um, a, a change, the Pester test would run, and we would just make sure is, is everything green? No, yes, and it, and we made decisions based off of that. We were able to freely, more freely, make changes without worrying about if we were breaking something or not. Um, so yeah, we've. I was a convert, not necessarily, not necessarily TDD because I tried the pure TDD approach. And I, I think it's, it, I can't say this for sure, but I think it's going to be a lot easier for a pure software developer to do TDD because with when you're doing infrastructure automation, you can't have that infrastructure beforehand. You have to have something to run it against to be able to actually know if the code is doing it. We, I can, you can run code all day, but if you're, if you're, automating infrastructure, you need some kind of environment set up. So I could kind of do a hybrid approach to where I would write the rough components of whatever script or code that I was doing, run the pester tests against it. And then if everything is good, I would just add, add, keep adding on additional functionality. Um, and it's not, that's not truly TDD. Um, but, um, uh, it was definitely much, much better than what we were doing at the time. Moving on to uh, your second book, Teach Me How to Write How-To Technical Articles That Make Money. One thing I, I kind of glossed over in the intro to this podcast was that you're not just a writer, you're a, actually a very prolific writer with over a thousand articles for clients in your blog. And so you know you know what you're talking about when you're talking about this kind of stuff. And one thing I wanted I wanted to quote you back at yourself is you said, you, you write, writing for large software vendors is by far the biggest money maker because they know if a decision maker in a large enterprise stumbles across an article you wrote and they end up buying a million dollar product that a few grand they gave you to write the article is peanuts end quote mm -hmm. and so for anyone listening to this who gets excited about making money uh, writing articles like this how do you find your way into contract with a large software vendor to write an article for them i know it's it's it can be quite a journey yeah um so i started um doing freelance writing um for content marketing purposes five years ago you know it's probably three or four years ago um, and I started simply by, by blogging. Um, I built up a portfolio, um, through my blog, um, just writing for myself, not getting paid anything at all. Just trying my best to, to put some kind of words on, um, words on the screen so that people could see, Hey, if, when I do ask one, a, a software vendor or a media publication or a magazine, um, and, and, and you're at the time you're, you're really not known. You're just a Joe coming off the street. I'd say, look, here's all these articles that I've written. What do you think of my writing style? And nine times out of 10, um, it's been my experience at least. They'd be like, okay, yes, we love, we want technical how to articles because those, you know, those are great for content marketing purposes. And I got my start by slowly building up, um, a client base. So I got one, got another and that lead it to another. And eventually what, can, what happens what un, inadvertently what happened was that I was writing for so many places and my name kind of got out of so many different areas that I spread myself out so much that um, people started hearing, hey, I hear you write, you wrote, I saw this article you wrote on CIO or I saw this um, piece that you wrote on in this magazine or something like that. And it just kind of snowballed itself, not necessarily purposely in my fault, but um, if you just constantly add different sites. That's one thing I talk about a lot in the book is, is really trying to spread yourself out as much as possible because you're not only getting more work and getting paid for it, but you're also getting lots more exposure. That way you don't have to constantly start, you know, grabbing your own work all over again. You just, eventually you start kind of having people that, Hey, I heard about you and they email you, Hey, can you, can you write this piece? And it just kind of snowballs from there. And you, you've got some really, uh, you know, detailed uh, experiences that you go into in the book about negotiating, for example, and what the limits are of negotiation. So when someone approaches you, I would like you to write an article, you get to say, you know, they might say how much or they might give you a price or you might get to say how much you want. What's your experience with negotiating? Do people have a kind of upper limit when they approach you asking you for an article? 
Yep. So what normally happens in the negotiating phase is that's the one of the reasons why I wanted to get detailed in the book, because whenever I first started, I had no idea what you would get, get paid. You know, you, you go on Reddit um, and see all these freelance writing sites that I'm getting paid five cents a, a word or I'm getting paid a quarter a word or, you know, something like that. And what a lot of these places that I've learned that they really don't tell you is the, the deep technical articles um, about uh, IT, software development. Um, if you're an expert in, the, in some kind of technical field, that's very, very valuable to these companies because you can talk directly to their customers. So there's a few different types of clients that I had, but um, just referring to just software vendors, they have content marketing teams out there that are constantly looking for quote unquote influencers or um, freelance writers that can write content that can speak directly to their audience. And what you find is if a lot of people don't even realize how much knowledge they have and how valuable that is in their head to a software vendor, if you can write, if you can, you know, it takes a little bit of work to get up to, uh, you know, to write a, a, a really nice comprehensive quality article but if you can get to the point to where you can do that, um, that's one thing that I really wanted to point out was the prices. Because whenever I first started, I didn't know. And then luckily, I knew somebody that was uh, another one of the mentor of mine was doing a lot of writing. And I said, well, how much do you get paid for that? And he would actually tell me, well, I got paid $500. I got paid $1,000 for this. I'm like, you got paid, you know, for, you know, a white paper, you got paid $2,000 or something. It's like, yeah, I got, you know, it was $2,000 or whatever it was. And it was way, way higher than what I had read because what I was reading was just general freelance writing. I didn't, I didn't understand that the technical details, if you can take that technical knowledge in your head and communicate that uh, with uh, an audience, that is hugely valuable. Yeah, and uh, it's it's interesting. You've got some advice about that as well. Uh, one piece of which is don't write lists, uh, mm -hmm. or just sort of like sets of instructions. You need to give a framework to to a technical article when you're writing it. Yeah, a lot of people, um, a lot of new writers, they will they will try to just write documentation. They don't know the difference between documentation and a great web article. Way different uh, format. You know, uh, that's one thing that I on Adam the Automator. I don't know if you've seen that. I've recently brought on um, guest authors that can apply and they go through the publishing process. I do the editing and you see a lot of different guest authors on there. Um, and that's one thing that uh, I have done is I've kind of been the coach around that. I've coached them on how to provide them lots of feedbacks on how to write better rather than don't just say step one, do this, step one, do this, step three, do this. That's, that's boring. The, the reader wants to not only learn something, they want to come away with it, but they want to be entertained. They want to be engaged. They don't want to be bored to tears. And that's one thing that I really, really try to, uh, to teach people um, in that book and also um, the guest authors on my blog is that you, you have to tell a story. You have, to, you have to, to, to fill in the gaps. You can't be black and white, binary, one, two, three, four, or five. You have to put in pictures, graphics, uh, images, infographics, uh, tables, spice it up, get some variety in there and really um, just make it entertaining uh, for the reader and also br come bring them away, have them come away with something that they learned and entertain them in the process. Yeah, I just looked this up uh, for anyone interested in writing for Adam's site. If you go to adamtheautomator.com slash friends, uh, you'll find all the information you need there. The last question I have about that actually is, so you, you, this has come up once or twice already in this interview, but imposter syndrome and the problem, I mean, we all commonly have where we sort of underestimate the value of the knowledge that we have. And so we sort of, it's often we forget that like everything, you know, you had to learn at some point and there's someone else out there who doesn't know it yet. And so with everything, you know, you actually have something to offer somebody. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and, and how, 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 what advice do you have for people to get, get over something like imposter syndrome? Is it just like, get your voice out there and you'll start realizing people will be, they'll point out the value to you of what you've written. I think that um, you have to have somewhat, it depends on what the audience um, is, but you have to have somewhat of a tough skin. Have that initial, it's that first hurdle is always the hardest. This is, enough, this is something that I've, um, I've tried to teach um, contri contri ugh, contributors with tech snips for the, through video and now on Adam the Automator through uh, articles. 
a lot of people don't even start. They don't even take that very first step because they think, well, somebody's already done it or, um, uh, oh, people know more than I do. And I tried to, to get through them that, sure, there's always going to be somebody that knows more than you that does something better than you. Um, but there's going to be a whole, whole lot of people that you are letting down because you they don't know what you know. You're being you know selfish with your knowledge to some degree because you just think, well, I'm not going to do it because somebody's already done it before. Um, and I, I try to come back with an almost guilt trip and think, well, that's kind of being selfish with your knowledge because look at all those junior guys. Look where you were 5, 10, 20 years ago or something. Those people want to know what you know. And even if people have done this before, it's about how you package the content. I have written – I've written over a thousand articles or something on just about every topic known to man in the PowerShell and automation world. I know that I'm not the smartest person and I know that I have hit on topics multiple times, but I've hit on those same topics and packaged them a little bit differently. I'll kind of wrap a different story around them and make them my own because you are not, um, you can only tell your story and the way that you explain it. Um, even though, you know, Joe Schmo over here, maybe uh, this technical expert that knows everything. And when he writes about it, he writes it in one, two, three, four, right? And it's just so boring as hell that you will never even, you'll just fall asleep. But if you, you can convey the same knowledge over here and write a very convincing, engaging and entertaining article, sure, you're talking about the same topic, but you're, you're going to have more audience than him because you are showing people like to hear your unique and personal perspective and get some kind of you know entertainment out of uh, you know whatever knowledge that you're trying to convey. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. And I hope uh, anyone listening who's sort of been thinking about taking the leap to writing uh, takes takes that to heart. Uh, you do you do know something, and you do know enough. And uh, yeah, just try and make it interesting, and you'll get better over time as well. Is is another yeah. Just put lesson. some puts just start typing. That's all there is to it. I mean, I, I look back at some of the blog articles I did; they are horrendous, but it's where I got my start. You become just more comfortable. Just start typing about anything that interests you. Mm -hmm. Um, moving on to the last part of the interview, so about your books. Before we actually talk about LeanPub, I believe uh, we it's a good opportunity to do some, I think they call it log rolling in some circles, but uh, you've got a book coming out from No Starch Press called PowerShell for Sysadmins. And if you mm -hmm. just want to give that a little bit of a plug. Yeah, so um, that was my, uh, I started out doing um, e-books, and um, now I decided to, uh, to do my first published print book through uh, No Starch Press. Like I said, it's called PowerShell for Sysadmins, and it's essentially a, uh, a guide for IT professional system administrators uh, that may not be uh, familiar enough with PowerShell and automation and how to do um, you know, all the, the cool things around that area. And it also for people that, maybe, that may have been using PowerShell that may not realize all the power that it can do to give them some more ideas on um, on how to better automate some things in their environment. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. And so it's coming out in print soon? Yes. Uh, my publisher said it should go to the printer next month. I don't know how soon it's going to be until it's actually uh, you know out in bookstores. Okay, okay. We'll make sure to have a link to it uh, in the transcription for this uh, podcast. And and so you've written a couple of books on LeanPub. I'm curious. I actually don't – I I feel a bit bad about not knowing this for sure, but did you publish one or – both of them in progress? Yes. Yeah, that is a big, that's a big reason why I chose LeanPub because I'm the type of person where if I have an idea, I have to start it. I, I want to start immediately or I'll just I'll lose interest and I won't even start. And I found that if I start and offer it, you know, get a few chapters done, I can get a few chapters done in a few days and then tweet that out of my, my followers and say, this book is coming out and make it available and they pay for it. Then I'm on the hook to actually get it done. So that I use, I use that um, to my advantage. That makes, that forces me to do, to do more instead of just, you know, going off my ADHD self and, you know, going off to another project. So that really makes me accountable when I make it available and I have you know, um, some great people that will buy it before it's actually done. That way it forces me to, you know, to see it to completion. And you're very straightforward in your books. Uh, you have sections at the beginning where you where you ask for feedback from your readers. Um, did you did you? And I think specifically, actually, you you direct them to the email, the author link that we provide to people on um, the their landing page for the LeanPub books for their LeanPub books. Did you did you get feedback that way? 
Yep, I've gotten um, some feedback that way. Um, I think the majority of the people that um, buy the book know me on Twitter because I've I've um, I'm pretty uh, prevalent on Twitter. So I put in there they can reach me on Twitter too. So there's been a lot of people that have done went through the uh, email the author link, uh, but there's probably there has been more that have actually reached out to me on Twitter um, and given me feedback that way. Oh, that's that's really fantastic. One of the um, this was one of the sort of you know basic ideas behind creating LeanPub in the first place was that getting things out there uh, actually helps solve one of the biggest problems with completing books, which is motivation. Uh, yes. You know, it, it's exciting to have an audience and it's also daunting, but it's different having an audience than it is having an editor badgering you. And like, editors are great. Editors badgering you is great. Uh, but having actual readers out there waiting, like, when's the next chapter coming out? I need to learn this you know, so I can mm -hmm. complete my project or something like that can really be like a very, the best, the best kind of motivation because you know as soon as you hit publish and you announce that the new version's out, there's going to be people reading it. And then the feedback thing just it, well, creates a bit of a feedback loop where like, you know, they're, if someone gives you some feedback and then you update their book with their feedback, then they get excited about that. And they know that if they give you some advice or, you know, even like as simple as fixing a typo or like you should think about having a chapter on this, it actually, it's really exciting to readers and motivating to readers yeah. to be participating that way. I've actually taken that a step further in um, one of the books that I'm writing now um, on um, the PowerShell tips to write by. That's another one you didn't mention um, on LeanPub that, that one, I'm actually, I actually pulled um, my audience said, "Give me tips. Give me tips on how to better, how to write better PowerShell." And what I've been doing is the tips that I've been getting, I will credit everybody by you know their Reddit username, their Twitter username, and making a community effort to to bring them into the um, the writing process because I've gotten so many different tips and tricks and things that I've put in there, and then I've put. I specifically credited them and I think that they really liked that because they feel like, well, it's not just Adam writing the book. It's, you know, I contributed some to that. And that's been really, um, that's been really, that's been a really great project. It's been one of my more recent ones that I'm working on now. Yeah. Thanks very much for, for highlighting that. The last question I always like to ask on this podcast is if there was one thing we could build for you on lean pub or one thing we could fix for you, that's been bugging you. What would you ask us to do? Hmm. It would be, even though LeanPub is a great platform, I love the, the GitHub integration that I've been using and the Markdown and Markua um, format. Um, I really wish, what I really wish would happen is to have some kind of hybrid between personal publishing and professional publishing, having maybe an available you know, you want, you want to have a professional editor, here you go. We'll hand it over to this team of editors or, um, you know, you want to have a copywriter or, you know, anybody that can, or a copy editor that can help you with it. That would be very, that would be nice to have all in one kind of package of having an option where if you don't, if you don't want to just do all this on your own after, maybe after you're done with a book, okay, here's an option to, you know, ship this off to a professional. We already have, you know, um, editors on staff or contractors or whoever, um, and then they can actually go through the process and tweak it and hone it and make it better and update your book um, for you or giving you feedback on that sort of thing. That's one thing that I've um, I kind of struggle with because I'm actually struggling with that now because I wrote the Pester book on LeanPub and now No Starch Press wants to publish it, but I I gave it to them knowing that. It's not the, uh, in my opinion, and in their opinion too, it's not the best writing because it was pretty much a stream of consciousness and the majority of that while I was in the trenches doing that. And now I'm having to go back and I'm going to have to rewrite a ton of stuff because I just, you know, I just didn't know any better at the time on how to write, you know, a quote unquote, you know, proper uh, book. So that was, LeanPub allowed me to get my ideas out there quickly write the book and the book has been very popular, um, for my standards. Um, but I'm going to have to go back and do a lot of editing and, and copy editing and all kinds of other restructuring to actually get it, uh, a publisher to pick it up. And, um, specifically on that note, uh, and thank you very much for the, the suggestion. Um, we've had, we've had people ask versions of that versions of that before, and it's something we have thought about. Um, one thing we do have now is we have this, this advertising feature called the shelf where you can actually use unpaid royalties to pay for advertising would that be something that would be attractive would be the ability to use unpaid royalties that you've actually earned from your book publishing it in progress to then put towards some kind of 
third-party service like editing or something like that? Yeah, I think I personally would like an all-in-one thing. You know, I've hired you know I've hired editors on my own, but you have to go through a, a screening process and hiring people on Upwork, and I've done that. It would I, it would be really nice if LeanPub could say, "Here is this these these." Uh, I guess you could say um, mm. uh, a group of con- approved contractors, give them a, the lean pub seal of approval. Yes, they have worked with our platform. They know how to work in, you know, GitHub or uh, Marcua. They know, they know how to do things in lean pub. That's one thing that Pluralsight actually has just been starting here recently of Pluralsight approved editors. Uh, they're actually doing some of the editing now. So where they're kind of taking on the burden of that, and it'd be really nice to have that in the lean pub order where they know how to use the platform rather than me teaching them, okay, this is GitHub, this is Markdown, this is no, this is Mercua, this is not, this other Markdown flavor. Um, it would be really nice to have other professionals, editors, especially out there, just to kind of, that knows the lean pub way of doing things where you can hand it off and say, here's this book, please help me uh, make this book better. Okay. Well, thanks very much for that suggestion. That's, uh, that's uh, really helpful, and it's something that we'll definitely consider, consider doing. And uh, yeah, Adam, thank you very much for taking the time out of your, your day to do this interview, and thanks for being a Lean Pub author. No problem. Thanks for the platform. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to try being a Lean Pub author yourself, please go to our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.